I wonder what the, the markers you use to judge how, how well things are going in society or in church or in your own life. Because we do all have them. I think for society at large, it seems that the chief marker that people tend to be using is the economy. Is it growing? Are the unemployment figures going down? Are wages rising higher than inflation? All those results are regularly reported in the news and in the media. When it comes to church, it seems to be that the main marker that people tend to look at uh, outside is attendance numbers. Again, that is something which is quite regularly reported. And it's they're normally bad news. Overall, nationally, there seems to be a steady decline in church attendance. But what are the markers we use to judge how well church is going ourselves? Or how well our own life is going? Is it by how fit and able-bodied we feel? Is it whether we're feeling uh, appreciated and fulfilled at work? Or how our kind of relationships or family are faring? We do all instinctively make judgments about how our lives, how our society, how the church are doing. But the judgment that really counts in these things is not ours, but God's. And that is what we have in 1 and 2 Kings. We have God's judgment. We have his verdict on the nation of Israel. And as we consider his verdict on Israel of old, it actually helps us to reflect on what might be God's thinking about our society, our church, and perhaps even our lives. Now, we're diving in at chapter 16. The year is 874 B.C., and we need to get our bearings. So look at verse uh, uh, 29 of chapter 16, the first verse of that uh, passage. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab son of Omri became king of Israel, and he reigned in Samaria over Israel for 22 years. Now, when we read that, it is all rather confusing, particularly if you're very new to uh, the Bible. Because it's not just kind of one kingdom mentioned, but two. So let's look at this uh, timeline of Bible history to see what's going on. One Kings begins with the reign of Solomon. Now Solomon was the son of the great King David. And in his reign, Israel reached its kind of peak of her history. Everything seemed to be going Wonderfully, the, the temple was built. Israel as a nation was wealthy, united, living in peace. But because of Solomon's sin, that didn't last. And during the reign of Solomon's son, Rehoboam, there was a civil war. So 10 of Israel's 12 tribes broke away and they appointed a guy called Jeroboam as their king. And rather confusingly, they kept the name Israel. I suppose they had the majority of the tribes. Meanwhile, the remaining two, two tribes formed the kingdom of Judah. And they continued to have a descendant of David as king. And they kept Jerusalem as the, uh, uh, with the temple as the capital city. 
Anyway, one and two kings in the, these books, we follow the fortunes of both those, these kingdoms until they are destroyed by invading armies and carted off into exile. And for Israel, the longing that is permanent, for Judah, that is temporary. So in chapter 16, verse 29, we get to Ahab, who is the seventh king. Can we go back again? He is the seventh king of the northern kingdom of Israel. That's right. Sorry, I could have been red. Red doesn't come out particularly well, but you can see him up at the top. I've got Elijah up there. Uh, and during Ahab's reign, on the surface, thank you very much, uh, in Ahab's reign, on the surface, things seem to be going well for the northern kingdom. After Jeroboam, there'd been a, a lot of political instability with assassinations and coups. But actually with Ahab, there'd been a smooth transition of power from his father Omri. Ahab had also made what appeared on the surface to be a shrewd tactical marriage with the king of Sidon's daughter. Sidon was a key trading nation, so no doubt that helped the economy. But the God-inspired writer of Kings is not interested in that. And his verdict comes in verse 30. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. What matters for an individual or a church or a society is what does God see? How do things look in the sight of God? See, the kings of Ahab were, the kings before Ahab were bad, but Ahab outdid them all. So what we're going to do now is to just work through this short passage and consider five things that happen when God is ignored. Five things that happen when God's word is disregarded. And the first is widespread idolatry. And you see it there in verse 31. Ahab not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, but he also uh, married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal, and he built he had built in Samaria. Uh, the first thing we're told is that Ahab committed the sins of Jeroboam, the first king of the northern kingdom. Now, from earlier chapters, we know exactly what that sin was. You see, after the civil war, Jeroboam didn't want the subjects of his kingdom traveling to Jerusalem his rival's capital city, to worship God in the temple. So what he did, and we see it on this diagram, he set up two shrines. One in a town called Bethel, in the south of Israel, and uh, another one in a town called Dan, in the north. And in both those shrines, he placed a statue of a golden calf and told the people, these are the gods who brought you up out of Egypt. Now, that may have made political sense. But it was in direct defiance of the second of the Ten Commandments. 
You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or earth beneath or waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. And Ahab went along with the sin of Jeroboam. He considered it trivial. Trivial to commit the same sin as his ancestor. Although there was precedent. You know, there been the seventh kings. I mean, a few kings before. It was now part of the culture. He just considered it trivial. Didn't trouble his conscience. And so actually it wasn't long before Ahab broke the first commandment as well and began to worship Baal. And he wasn't half-hearted about that worship. <laughs> Encouraged by his wife, he ended up making it the state religion. He built a temple of Baal in his capital city. But the writer, you notice how the writer emphasized, you can get Baal mentioned more often in those uh, couple of verses. Now, the idolatry of Ahab is much more common than we think. See, idolatry takes place when we disregard the God who's revealed himself in his word, and instead we make up our own ideas about who God is and what God is and give our time and energy and devotion over to that. Friends, just think how widespread such idolatry is in our society. Like actually the biblical nation of Israel, we have enjoyed immense spiritual privileges and heritage. The word of God has been preached and known in our land over many, many years. But what have we done with that knowledge? We have with ever-increasing measure turned our back on it. Although church buildings are all around us, and although some Christian values like humility and kindness are still honored, Jesus is sidelined, and God, if referred to at all, has been domesticated for people's own personal and political ends. And that spirit can easily creep into the church. So instead of heeding the God who's revealed himself perfectly in Jesus and the scriptures, we misuse, ignore, or adapt the word of God to support our own agendas. We end up aping some of the godless values of our society rather than being a wholesome corrective. And it doesn't stop there. The final words of the Apostle John's first letter to Christians are these. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. See, he knows how easy it is for Christian people to slip into idolatrous patterns of behavior. So I want to be well thought of. And so I behave in certain ways and relate to people so that they will think well of me. And if I'm not careful, actually, my reputation becomes my idol. That's actually what is determining my decisions, my passions. That's what's filling my mind, my heart, my reputation. Or maybe I yearn for pleasure and enjoyment in life. So actually, my diary, my decisions are geared to just having a good time, an easy life. Experiencing pleasure, in which case that has become my idol because that is what I'm living for. 
Or I may want to succeed in my career. And so more and more, my time and energy and identity is tied up with how well I'm doing at work. And, and if not, I'm not careful, career, work has become an idol. It's a good thing created by God. All most of the idols are good things which have become God things. The human heart, my friends, is a factory of idolatry. And if we do not actively worship the one true God, we will make idols for ourselves of one sort or the other, and we'll direct our hearts towards them. So when God is ignored, there you will find idolatry. You will also find sexual chaos. In fact, the two often go together, and we see it there in verse 33. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all the kings of Israel before him. Now, nobody knows what an Asherah pole looks like because none have survived. They, they were made out of wood. But whatever it was, it represented the goddess Asherah. And basically, she was the girlfriend of Baal. Now, Baal was the god of rain and of fruitfulness. And basically, the thought was that if you got Baal and Asherah together, the more sex they had, the more prosperity there was down here on earth. So as well as setting up a temple to Baal in Samaria, Ahab also erected an Asherah pole. And although it's not explicitly mentioned in verse 33, we know from elsewhere that cult prostitution involving both male and female prostitutes was associated with the worship of Asherah. See, the way you encouraged Baal and Asherah to have more sex was to have sex in the temple yourself. So as you can imagine, the worship of Asherah and Baal was very popular indeed. And verse 33, Ahab did more to provoke the law to anger than did all the kings of Israel before him. Sex, my friends, is not part of the life of God because God is not a sexual being. And therefore, sex mustn't be elevated to a level where we, we worship it. It's a good gift of God. But it doesn't take much to see how sex has been given an ungodly prominence in our culture. In some sections of society, an intimate sexual relationship is seen as the ultimate good. In the world of advertising, numerous products are sold just on the basis of it. The ready availability of pornography, dating sites, and contraception all have encouraged the worship almost of sex. So whereas God's purpose for sex is to be, this precious gift is to be expressed within the context of lifelong marriage between a man and a woman, our society celebrates sexual activity all over the place. Just as in Ahab's Israel. Can I just say in passing, there will be actually a number of us here struggling to be godly in the directing of our sexuality. I mean, if uh, statistics are, are, are right, it wouldn't surprise me if about a third of us here in this church building this morning 
a, 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 you know, battle with a desire to consume pornography. And a number of us, there'll be some of us who will be addicted to it. And it won't just be men. In my last church, when I wrote an article, actually, about pornography, and I was open about the effect that consuming pornography had on me when I was a, a teenager at boarding school, and it was just, and it was quite, you know, today it would be described as vanilla, it was poor mags under the bed. But I knew that the effect that it had on me, and I've had to kind of battle the effect of that ever since throughout my whole life. The two people who came clean to me that they were struggling with pornography actually were both women. Friends, can I just say churches are not hotels for saints. We are hospitals for sinners. We're all deeply flawed and broken people. And because our society is in such sexual chaos, there will inevitably be those of us struggling in this area. And as a church, we want to be those who support and help one another in this. So if you're aware that there is chaos in this area, actually in any area of our lives, actually, where there is, you know, some sinful desire has got a bit of a grip on us, can I just say, share your battle with a trusted Christian friend you know. If they have any Christian maturity in them whatsoever, they won't be judgmental. <laughs> because they're battling with issues themselves. We all are. We are all broken people, aren't we? We're all struggling in different ways, and this will just be one particular area in which we are struggling. Because it's so prevalent in our society, it will be an area which we're struggling. People will be struggling here at uh, All Souls. And if you don't know uh, anybody, well, then get in touch with any of us on the ministry team. But that's not all. For when God is ignored, not only is there widespread uh, idolatry and sexual chaos, low value is also put on human life. And we see this in verse 34. Now, the background to verse 34 is something that happened when God brought the Israelites into the promised land. The first city that was destroyed was Jericho. And in Joshua chapter 6, we read the following. And hopefully the words are going to come up on the screen. There they are. At that time, Joshua pronounced this solemn oath. Curse before the Lord is the one who undertakes to rebuild this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn son, he will lay its foundations. At the cost of his youngest, he will set up its gates. So there is this very solemn warning that anybody who engages in this building project will do it at great cost to their children. But it was ignored. Now, strategically, it made sense to fortify Jericho. Jericho was on the border, and it was a good place to have a fortress. But through Joshua, God had warned his people not to do that. But the implication is that Jericho was rebuilt at Ahab's instigation, and it cost Hiel of Bethel both his eldest and youngest sons. Now, we aren't told the exact circumstances of how these boys died, but whatever happened, it is hugely suggestive of how, by ignoring God, 
a low value was being placed on human life and a high value was being placed on human achievement. In this case, the building up of a city. So on one hand, you have a building project, and on the other hand, you have the lives of two children. And the same thing happens today. When God is ignored, human life is devalued, human achievement is overvalued. Just think, have to think, in the construction of the stadiums for the, the Qatar Football World Cup, uh, migrant workers from South Asia, Africa, and the Philippines worked in appalling conditions. Hundreds of them died in the process. Men and women are created in God's image. God values every human life. God shows no favoritism. And he has a special concern for the weak and the vulnerable. And when we ignore God, we forget all that. And we have, and our tendency will be to devalue human life. It's a miserable scene, isn't it? Picture will be painted here. Widespread idolatry, sexual chaos, human uh, beings devalued. And what is God's reaction to all this? He's not indifferent. We're told in our passage, verse 33, he is provoked to anger. Now, some people hate the idea of God ever being angry and dismiss it out of hand. And that may be, and it's understandable, because they equate God's anger with human anger. Our anger is often associated with personal slight. And there are few things more ugly than seeing somebody fly off the handle in rage. And there are a few things more horrific than living with somebody who is with uncontrolled anger issues. Again, can I just say, if that is you and that's somebody here with that, please seek help. Well, can I just say, God's anger is not like that. <laughs> please, whenever you read of God's anger, don't think of human anger. God's anger is his settled, righteous hostility to all that is evil. What is more, God gives clear and ample warning of what he will do when we ignore him and go our own way. And so in our first reading, we heard Moses tell the Israelites what God would do to them once they entered the promised land if they turned away from him to worship other gods. We're told that God would shut the heavens so that it would not rain. So when Elijah turns up in chapter 17, verse 1, and says, As the Lord, the God of Israel, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years, except that my word, he's not coming up with something new. Now here is God being faithful in his dealing with Israel. Israel has broken the covenant with God, and so now the covenant curses come into play. The punishment fits a crime. And so today, if we have eyes to see it, we see actually God's good and righteous and perfect anger being expressed as he hands societies over to their godlessness. And they suffer more and more intractable problems. That's what Romans chapter 1 teaches us. God gave them over, so God gave them over, so God gave them over. 
But instead of stopping to think about our human natures and why we keep getting things wrong, instead of facing up to the reality of a creator God and seeking the truth that's in him, as a society, we continue to blindly go our own way, provoking more and more his righteous anger. And as a, as a church and as a denomination, and as individuals, we need to keep asking ourselves, are we serving God faithfully? Living for him? And paying close attention to his word? Or are we, to a greater or lesser extent, ignoring him and doing our own thing? For if it is the latter, we are not provoking God's pleasure, but his righteous and holy anger. But finally and wonderfully, friends, that is not all that God does when he's ignored. He also sends his word. So here is Ahab's reign. Evil has a grip on society and it seems to have won the day. Under Ahab's wife Jezebel's influence, Baal is now the God who's worshipped in Israel, not Yahweh. The cause of God seems defeated, but it isn't. God is not caught unawares. He is ready. Chapter 17, verse 1. Now, Elijah the Tishbe, the, sorry, the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Now, the entrance of Elijah is very sudden, even by Bible standards. <laughs> There's no kind of introduction. We don't know anything about him except that he came from Tishbe, east of the Jordan River. But actually, we shall come to see Elijah is a great prophet of God who faithfully passes on the word of God to Ahab and the people of his generation. Evil will not win the day. Ahab and Jezebel's idolatrous tyranny will not continue unchecked. And what is more, in sending Elijah to confront Ahab with God's message, God is not only defending the honor of his name, he's also being kind and compassionate to Ahab. He's giving Ahab and the rest of Israel an opportunity to come to their senses and repent. God is compassionate and loving. We're told elsewhere in the Bible, he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather longs that they may turn from their wicked ways and live. And that is why Elijah points us ultimately to Jesus. For God has set a day when once and for all he will judge this wicked world. It will be a day of wrath and destruction of God's holy and righteous and good anger. But God longs for people to be saved from his just judgment, which is why he sent Jesus into the world. Jesus is God's ultimate and final word to a rebellious mankind who ignore and disregard him. And so if any of us know that we have been ignoring God and disregarding his ways recently, then please heed God's gracious and kind word to you in Jesus and repent and believe in him before it is too late.
And if any of us are feeling discouraged by the godlessness that we see all around us in society, and sadly in parts of the visible church, well then consider Jesus. As he may be opposed and disregarded, just as Elijah and the other prophets were opposed and disregarded by Ahab. But Jesus is never defeated by evil and godlessness. Just as Elijah was never defeated by Ahab. So I don't know which markers you use to judge how well your life or the church or society is going. But there's only one opinion that counts, and that is God's. And there's only one marker that is worth using, and that is God's powerful and perfect word, which has its fulfillment in Jesus. Amen.